Good morning to you. Good to be together once again in the study of God's Word. Take your Bibles, if you would, and look at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. It shouldn't surprise us, really, that uh, one of the greatest struggles we have in our lives is having a a high opinion of ourselves. (laughs) And uh, have you ever... Have you ever had it happen in your mind when someone is critiquing you or telling you how they perceive you? Uh, obviously, you want to defend um, your pers- their perspective. You want to defend who you really are, especially if you're being misrepresented. But have you ever thought when you're being critiqued, well, you know, whether or not you're accurate in your perception, I can assure you it's far worse than you imagine. Yeah, you know, we nervously laugh about that because that thought doesn't often cross our minds. Now, if you're reminded that that's how we ought to think, you'll say, yes, that's, that's, uh, that's what we ought to think. <laughs> but it isn't our propensity at all. In fact, our propensity is quite the opposite. We do think highly of ourselves. Why? Because in the first sin, the very first sin ever committed, Mankind uh, took a higher opinion of himself in the presence of Almighty God, in the face of God. God had made man. God had made man dependent. God told man what his view ought to be of himself, and it was glorious indeed. He was the pinnacle of all that God had created, and Psalm 8 says that God crowned mankind with glory and majesty as a reflection of God, bearing the image of the Creator. I mean, this was amazing. And instead, however, of taking all that knowledge in and having it uh, bring the man low, it soon turned into notions far different, notions far greater. Adam thought of himself more highly than he ought to think in that moment when he decided to go beyond the barrier that God had placed there upon the man and the woman. And we have been, of course, studying a bit of these dynamics of what goes on in our hearts and trying to develop some principles that are practical and for us to use and nurture the opposite. To cultivate and nurture in the garden of our hearts and our inner life a path to humility a path to see ourselves rightly before God and understand what God says about us and make that the target, make that the ultimate assessment, the evaluation, the score sheet, to make God's assessment of us the only one that lives in our hearts rather than uh, what is quite common to us, and that is an overinflated view of ourselves as the Scriptures warns against. Paul will say that here in chapter 6 of Galatians. Notice very simply verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Wow, that's pretty straightforward. There are two things to note there. Uh, The conditional, if you think you are something, and then the the, uh, temporal description of us, when you are in fact nothing... That's a pretty straightforward contrast, very helpful for Paul to be so concise under the inspiration of the Spirit 
And then notice why, sort of the, the way we're to look at that, verse 4. But each one must examine his own work, and then he'll have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Of course, the problem in Galatia was just like it was in most churches, especially where groups with previous traditions were coming together and colliding, Jew and Gentile were coming together and they were infighting and backbiting and puffing themselves up and seeing others with condescension. And he says, look, you, you, you praise yourself, you gather in little cliques, you honor certain individuals above others um, and use that against this group and make a faction of yourself. Look, I don't want you to do that. I want you to know this. If you think you're something because you're part of this group or, you're, or your ethnic background is this or your tradition is this, just know if you think you're something when you're nothing, you're deceiving yourself. But each one must examine his own work. Look, stop looking at other people and comparing yourself with them. You're going to have to examine your own life. You're going to have to examine your own work. And verse 5, each will bear his own load. That is to say, when you stand before God, the one who made you, you're going to bear your own load. You're going to have to offer up to God what you did with what he gave you. And that's a very uh, helpful way for Paul to address what becomes for us a very straightforward statement and warning about never seeing ourselves more highly than we ought. Now, why are we discussing this? Because as we nurture, these, as we nurture humility through these principles, we're, we're also on the backside of it uh, attempting to to take a, an axe to the root of the tree of pride and the, the various ways pride manifests itself. You remember, if you've been with, our, with us in our study of the life of our Lord, He met with the Pharisees constantly, and as they collided, He would point out, look, you guys are like this. You, you puff yourselves up. You seek the preeminent seats. You want the praises of men. This is what you're all about. And so from that section in Luke 14, where we last left off, Jesus had said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. If you think you're something, God's going to put things in your life that are going to bring you to the place where you see yourself rightly. But on the other hand, if you humble yourself, Jesus says, if you see yourself rightly before God, it is God who will use you in a way that honors him. And in that sense, you'll be exalted as to usefulness to God. That's the goal. And so we have given you nine principles for nurturing humility and crushing pride. I'll just review them. The first was to submit to the lordship of Christ. That is to say, understand he's sovereign. Just admit it. He is sovereign. Whatever happens in your life, you're never going to get away from this reality that God is sovereignly ordaining all those things. And that nurtures humility because as creatures, we are dependent upon Almighty God. There is nothing that happens that isn't under, mysteriously, the overarching sovereign power and will of God. Ephesians 1.11 says very clearly, all things work after the counsel of His will. Then we said you need to go to the cross. If you're going to nurture humility, you've got to learn why the cross was necessary. And you can't make the cross into some humanitarian act of, of wonderful example of giving your life. No, the cross is far different than that, far worse, far more shameful. My sin was put to Jesus' account and crushed him as guilty, though he was innocent. Your sin was the same thing if you know and love the Lord Jesus today. So you got to go to the cross and learn everything you can about why Christ had to go, and it points a, a halogen light on our own sin and therefore nurtures humility. 
Then number three was to open yourself up to the corrective work of the Spirit of God. Look, when you read the Word, He corrects, He rebukes, He reproves. If, if you, you're going to live the Christian life in, and soft-pedal those things and not accept the Spirit's correcting and reproving and rebuking work, then your mind's not going to be renewed, as the Bible says, and you'll lose discernment and pride will begin to take root. Number four, when you fail, we said you need to run to God for mercy instead of trying to solve the problem yourself in your own strength or to hide your problem. You run to God for mercy because humility feeds on running to God for mercy. Number five, when others fail, you are to be like Christ. You offer them compassionate, lavish pardon and forgiveness. And we talked extensively about what it means to forgive offenses. Now, last time, we took a shot at four more of these principles for nurturing humility. The first was, number six, pursue righteous ambition and flee every other kind. In other words, don't nurture selfish ambition in your heart, even calling it A-type personality or calling it competitiveness or any of those things that might be interesting ways that we're wired. Don't excuse pride and selfish ambition in those things because, as James 3 warns, selfish ambition results in every kind of chaotic thing. Number seven, forsake unrighteous jealousy and envy. Look, there are some things to get jealous about, jealous for someone else's godliness, jealous for your children to, to know the Lord, and, and to envy someone else's Christian life and emulate their Christian life. Those are righteous forms of jealousy and envy, but there's also, unfortunately, the ugly forms of that where you want what someone else has, and then envy wants it so badly, you don't want them to have it, and you want to harm them for having what they have and destroy their joy. We are to confess and forsake unrighteous jealousy and envy, and that nurtures humility in the heart. We're also to confess then, number eight, that what we have is undeserved. If you ever lose the terminology of how privileged you are, if you ever lose that from your vocabulary, you have a serious problem because as we saw last time, everything that we enjoy from, from ministry faithfulness to repentance and faith and a heart that's broken over our sin, everything we enjoy in terms of gifts, talents, skills, achievements, all those things in life are graces from God Almighty and He can take them away as fast as He lavishly yields them. And then number nine, we are to rejoice when others are exalted. <laughs> we talked about how difficult it is to rejoice when someone else does something as good as you do, do it or better. Or uh, they do something and they get credit for it when you know you could do it better. And that gets very difficult to actually, in your heart of hearts, nurture humility and rejoice genuinely in those things. For these Last few principles, let's just try to tackle them. Number 10, then, for nurturing humility and crushing pride is never inflate your self-assessment. <laughs> never inflate your view of yourself, your self-assessment. The pride in us wants to set itself up as distinguished. We understand this. We want to stand out from others. We want others to say, wow, that person is extraordinary, that's what we love to hear. And at times we even put some sort of minimizing claim on it 
to make it sound more righteous. We claim it's only because we want to be the best we can be and to achieve our goals. And that may be true here and there. You might have a genuine motive here and there. But even those claims are often all tangled up in the desire to craft an image of ourselves that hides the reality behind a facade, a pretense. The fact is, beloved, we all have serious limitations. We all suffer from human weaknesses that, that actually damage our reputation in the eyes of others, and it's our fault. And the best of the things about us that would commend us to others are often tainted by the sin that easily entangles our lives, which we spend an awful lot of energy trying to hide. And so we develop habits. We develop habits of minimizing what's not so good about us, and we work hard to rebrand ourselves. This is our culture's savvy. We rebrand everything to make it look better than it is, and sinners are no different in our moral life. Now, to qualify this, there's nothing particularly redeeming about running around airing your worst sides to everyone around you. There's nothing particularly redeeming about that. It's not helpful for two reasons. One, you'll be tempted to gain sympathy by morbid self-loathing and self-pity, right? You don't want to run around and air all this terrible stuff about you as if you're some sort of introvert looking at the, morbidly at all the weaknesses of your life and wanting to gain people's sympathy on that, that turns quickly to self-pity, which is the subtlest form of pride. And the second problem with airing all of that stuff in some way is that others will be tempted to love seeing you in that condition and puff themselves up because you're lower than they are. So it's not particularly healthy. However, neither is it right for conscience sake to inflate your self-assessment attempting to to sort of, as I said, craft this image that's better than the reality. You say, well, pastor, what are some of the ways we do this? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> you know in this series we've been having some fun with these practical little dynamics of the heart. First of all, we at times exaggerate our reputation. We exaggerate our reputation. Some practical ways we might do this. How about filling out a job application, and you embellish your accomplishments. All you did was clean offices at that job, but you wrote utilities control operator. <laughs> and in the interview, what, what, what does that mean? Well, <laughs> you don't actually come out and say, well, I clean, clean toilets and offices. Or you took two classes online for that university but you tell people you did all your coursework there. Yeah, but you failed one of those classes and you only took two online. You don't have a degree, but you never mentioned that. I did all my coursework there. Of course you did. Two classes. You're embellishing your reputation. People drop names of important people as their personal friends. And sometimes they have them as personal friends. They don't need to drop those names. If it's a personal friend, it's a gift from God. If they're not personal friends and you drop their name, uh, you, you're not telling the truth. You just generically interacted with them, perhaps on Twitter. Suddenly they're your personal friend. You're embellishing your reputation. Or you serve under others in a ministry, but you more than imply to people that you're the one who runs things. 
That would be an example of exaggerating your reputation. How about another subtle way we do this? We drop hints of superiority in conversation, right? Uh, we lead a conversation inevitably toward things that we're good at. We're dropping hints at our superiority. We want the conversation to move toward what we're really good at. This happens all the time at pastor's conferences. You would think that that group of men would be the most godly. We're at a pastor's conference. The ethos is there. We're swept up in all of it. And then we sit down at lunch, and it's like, so tell me about your church. How many people go there? You know. And we're just, we're just asking because we want to know what to pray for. No. We want to know how we might exaggerate our ministry and bring up the superiority of it. Do you do something like that when you bait others for compliments? Right? You bait others for compliments. You prayed every morning this week and you want others to know it. So at the Bible study you say, hey, I wonder if all of you could help me understand how to grow in my prayer life. It's knowing that when they bring up prayer life, you're going to be able to say, oh, oh yeah, I prayed every day this week. I'm really improving. What did you do? You baited the conversation for a compliment. Or perhaps you're the kind of person who struggles with so much external vanity, and in your vanity you say to a friend, you're always so pretty and put together. Wish I could make that happen. Knowing full well they're going to say, are you kidding me? You're gorgeous. <laughs> oh, really? Moi? No. Please. You don't think that happens in church? <laughs> or how about all of your stories make you shine? All of your stories make you shine. In every dialogue that you recount to others, you're always the one correcting people from the water of your deep well. You ever, you ever been around people like that? Have you ever been that person? Or the way you counseled someone, never lacked wisdom or insight, you were never incorrect, you were never out of balance. Your parenting is always balanced when you talk about it. Or you're never the specific problem in your marriage. Oh, you say, well, I've failed my spouse at times, but it's always your spouse's specific weaknesses that are highlighted in some way. This is how we exaggerate our reputation. God's definitely doing a work in you, but in all your stories, you never hear just what he's correcting. It's all generic. Listen, beloved, if we're going to nurture humility, we have to remember that if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Turn to Romans chapter 12 for a moment. You remember what Paul says here, right after saying that we are to live our life as a living sacrifice. He talks about his ministry to the believers in Rome. Verse 3, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Look at the way that Paul repeats himself in verse 3. 
First, he says, the grace of God given to me is what allows me to say this. So again, he is helping them understand. He is on the same page with them, on the same level with them. This is grace given to me, and I'm saying this to everyone among you. And then notice this. I don't want you to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Everything about life and ministry begins and ends right there in the inner life. What you are on the outside isn't the reality. The reality is what's going on on the inside where no one else sees it but you and God. And so if you're going to nurture humility, as we've said before, you must then go where the Spirit goes to the inner life, to the thought life. What do you think about yourself? How do you reason about yourself? What are your intentions when you communicate things about yourself? What are the motives of your heart? Do you guard that? You can't nurture humility if it is reckless. Lots of loose ends. You say a lot of prideful things over here and then you come to church and you act as though you're worshiping God. You say a lot of terribly uh, puffed up things in this conversation and then together the three of you bow for prayer and you say things that represent or are supposed to represent humility. Look, posturing in prayer externally in front of people does not tell the whole story if in here, in your intentions, you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. It begins in the discipline of what you reason in your mind. Are you the kind of person who has no bar or restraint on what they say because there's no bar or restraint on what you think? You just run your opinions about other people run them down. Your opinions about yourself highlight your superiority. There is a constant sense in which you're the hero of all your own stories. You bait people for compliments. It's always about your best side. And this is the habit of the thoughts of your life. Listen, if that's the case, Paul says here, I I want you to understand that by the grace of God given to me, I'm admonishing you to do the opposite as a discipline. Notice he says, I want you to think so as to have sound judgment. Sound judgment. It is to think rightly or in a healthy way. It's just terminology that we don't, we don't typically use the word sound to refer to that which is healthy. But if you look at it the other way around, anything unhealthy, we're we're wanting to get away from as fast as we can. Just put it in the physical realm. Hey, I don't want to be unhealthy in what I eat, what I ingest, what I breathe in. I don't want to be unhealthy in my lifestyle practices. I mean, we are obsessed with physiological health in this country. Right or wrong or indifferent, that is the case. And yet on the inside, we have such unhealthy, spiritually and morally unhealthy thoughts as the discipline of our mind. We We let that stuff run free, and Paul says it'll destroy you. You are to think so as to have healthy judgment, a healthy assessment of yourself. Everything in life and ministry begins right here. In fact, Proverbs 4.23, Solomon said, guard that part of your life. Guard your heart with all diligence. For from it flow the issues of life. Now look, none of us have this remotely mastered, 
But some individuals in the Christian life have spent a significant amount of time reining in their loose end thoughts because Solomon says, guard that area of your life with all diligence. And they've done so. And you know what? They, they aren't the ones in the conversation who boast and brag. They aren't the ones in whose life you see this unhealthy self-assessment. They aren't the ones who are unwilling to look at themselves and always shining a light on everyone else. They're not the ones who boast and brag about their counsel and how many people they disciple or, or any achievement that's earthly. They see it in a right perspective. They see it from God's perspective. They're always, in fact, asking that question, where am I at before God? I don't have enough time to worry about your weaknesses. I might be burdened for them, pray for them. You ask me to help you, I'll try to help you, but i got to shine a light on me. That kind of person is attractive to be around. Is that you? Or is it at times just that you don't guard your heart with all diligence at all? Look, from it flow the issues of life. Our lives are the way they are based upon the disciplined thought life and reasoning life that we have. Whatever your weakness, trace it. Take a a divine sort of pen and trace the line back to issues of undisciplined living in your thought life, ways that you're nurturing pride rather than humility, ways that you're thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Take the Word of God and inoculate that area of your mind Look, we are never to embellish or exaggerate our reputation. We're never to do that. We're never to inflate our self-assessment. We are to be circumspect in our thinking. Now that leads to number 11, which, which then is sort of the other side of this. You then are going to have to learn to embrace obscurity. You're going to have to learn to embrace obscurity. Look at John chapter 3, and we will finish in this text, but cover the principles we need to cover. John chapter 3. I referred to this last time because it is, of course, a dramatic testimony from the forerunner of Christ himself. But you ought to have verse 30 highlighted, underlined, or at least imprinted anywhere in your life and everywhere in your life. John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, verse 30, to his disciples, the array of them, after his very successful prophetic ministry, he said, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. I love this about John the Baptist. John the Baptist's life really is a metaphor for all of that. In fact, I've said to our congregation before, here was the greatest prophet who ever lived before Christ came. He was said to be that. He he was distinguished, set apart by God. Even his parents knew it. And at an early age, he went out into the wilderness to prepare for this great mission. And he was set apart from life. He was set apart from the cultural baggage that goes along with living in society. He was out in the wilderness in prophet's clothes, eating prophet's diet. And, and when he came on the scene, he was to do one thing. He was to point to the Messiah. He was to announce him coming. The Messiah is not going to 
come to earth as God incarnate unless there is some announcing. He may have come into the little town of Bethlehem and not as a king should come. One day he will come as a king should come. But in that day, he came in obscurity, but not unannounced. John the Baptist came out of his obscure wilderness existence for one job, to announce that you better get your heart right because Messiah is going to be on the scene and he's going to draw that line in the sand. What a ministry he had. What a powerful ministry filled with the Holy Spirit for prophetic work in his mother's womb, the Scriptures say. Wow. And yet, having announced the Messiah, having exposed hearts as people came repenting and having their and, and being a part in that Old Testament cleansing ritual of baptism before New Testament baptism was even on the scene, having people come and say, I repent, and follow him as a follower of this great prophet, even in all of that, John the Baptist had one role, and that was to point to Christ. And when Christ came on the scene and was also baptizing over near Enon, the gospel says, John the Baptist said, you need to go, go follow him. The disciples are now following him. They're seeing him for who he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. You, you need to go follow him. I must decrease as he increases. You know what God did? God put an exclamation point on that very statement by taking John the Baptist's life early cut his head off shortly after that. Why? As a living illustration of this statement in verse 30. I must decrease. You follow him, I'm off the scene. That was such a grace from the Lord, not only to take John the Baptist home rather than, rather than have him be a part of trying to say to disciples constantly through his life, look, I'm not your prophet anymore. Go. Go find Christ. Follow him. I'm not your master what a grace in John the Baptist's life, and what a grace in those disciples' lives who would tend to much rather have a, a rather human, uh, sort of frail version rather than the Messiah himself who took upon our frail, himself our frailties but was innocent morally. Oh, they would have, would have much rather gravitated toward a prophet who sinned like they did, as John the Baptist did. John the Baptist was a sinner. He, he had sin in his life. He needed a savior. Uh, we would have much rather wanted a guy like that. Yeah, he's more comfortable to be around. Jesus, he, he's, he's difficult. I mean, the guy says, who convicts me of sin? And no one can actually pick up a stone and convict him. What a grace that God took John the Baptist early. Look, beloved, if you're going to nurture humility, then we need to be like John the Baptist and practice embracing hiddenness hiddenness. Not if God puts you out there. If God puts you out there for your usefulness, that is God putting you out there for his glory as you're used for him. But God wants you to live as though your reputation isn't the issue. Your renown isn't on display. It's God's name that's on display. Even the Spirit himself, the third member of the Godhead, bears witness to Christ, John's gospel says. You've been saved. You've been redeemed. The Spirit of God has come to live within you. And by the Spirit of God, the Father and the Son take up their abode in the believer. I am the temple of the living God as a Christian. That says nothing about me and everything about him. And so my life is to be about manifesting and reflecting him. 
And we're not talking, just, just to qualify it practically, we're not talking about squelching an outgoing personality. That isn't the issue. God makes people who he makes them. But here's the question. Is the love of God, is the grace of Christ, is the character of the living God being noticed through your ministry? Or are you squelching those things so that you can put yourself on display? Before you enter a room, consider how you'd behave if Jesus was already in the room. You ever thought about that? Before you enter a room with people you know or don't know, consider how you'd behave if Jesus was already in the room and everyone were sitting at his feet. Would you say, here I am! Would you think, hey, why am I being left out? If you've been with friends and your strengths have never been talked about, or you've been with friends and your needs have never been met or addressed, and no one's asked you any questions so as to tap your knowledge, even if the dialogue was your wheelhouse but someone else had the floor, if you're with your friends and you can leave the evening when none of that has been addressed in your life, you've never been highlighted, highlighted, and you're thanking the Lord that your flesh did not rule over you so as to put yourself forward and that the Lord allowed others to be at the center instead of you, if that's the case, then you're nurturing humility in true thankfulness that you, you had some obscurity happen. I mentioned a song lyric last week. Dan wanted the information on it, so I sent it to him this morning. But I just want to remind you of these great lyrics from a song by Sovereign Grace called Surrender All. Take all I am, Lord, and all that I cling to. You are my Savior. I owe everything to. Take all the treasures that lie in my storehouse. They cannot follow when I enter your house. And so I surrender all to you. Take all my cravings for vain recognition, fleshly indulgence, and worldly ambition. I want so much, Lord, to make you the focus and to serve you in secret and never be noticed. That'd be a frightening set of lyrics to sing if I walked from the song out into my circle of influence wanting to be noticed. Can you serve Christ in secret, faithfully? Can you serve Christ in secret, faithfully, for as many years as he ordains and never be noticed by anyone but him? We have missionaries that have been sent out from this church and, oh, they would love to come on a Sunday morning like we do and see 10, 15, 20, 30 familiar faces. People who love them and whom they love and would love to sit in a corporate service like this and worship. And, and they have trained for ministry. God has called them and they've been sent to a foreign land where the language has to be learned because there's a barrier and there's cultural dynamics that have to be learned. They're not familiar. They have to learn a new kind of way to eat and prepare meals in the, 
in the dynamics of that culture. They have to learn how to inflect in the language to mean the same things that bring comfort in relationships that we just do intuitively. They have to learn all of that. And until they begin to learn that and until they can become proficient at it, they feel deeply alone. And then how many times do they serve the Lord faithfully Sunday after Sunday and no one at their home church knows because they're not writing a bunch of letters saying, look what we've done. Nor sometimes is the ministry that sent them writing them and saying, would you tell us what's going on? Even if we communicate, it's not every day like it would be here, as simple as a phone call away or a drive-by visit. At times, no doubt, they feel as though they serve in obscurity and no one knows. Can you serve Christ in secret, faithfully, for as long as he ordains and never be noticed by anyone but him? If he calls you to an obscure moment among friends, an obscure ministry among those who should otherwise thank you and notice, but they don't. Has he called you to take care of someone who can't reciprocate, can't give it back, and no one ever really knows the heartache that you go through in praying for that individual and ministering to that individual. What about your own life? Do you want Christ at the forefront? Do you say you want Christ at the forefront, but you secretly desire recognition? Is it your greatest joy when people speak of Christ after your personal investment in their life? They speak only of Christ. You disappeared. That was John the Baptist. He didn't want his name renowned. He didn't want status or prominence, though he was, by God's design, the greatest prophet who'd ever lived until Christ arrived. His greatest satisfaction came when he saw everyone coming to Christ. It was his joyous privilege to have played a role in it, not so that people could know he played a role, but but that he, a sinner, was given a role. He saw himself rightly, and so he recommended Christ. It's like the poet said, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. He rejoiced to recommend Christ. He rejoiced in Christ's words. John the Baptist was not begrudged. He wasn't conceding to some superior opponent begrudgingly. He was embracing the sovereign will of God and the exaltation it brings to Christ. This must be our life. He must increase, but I must decrease. Are these your convictions? The next principle is to nurture a heart of contentment. To nurture a heart of contentment. Number 10 was to never inflate your self-assessment. Number 11 was to learn to embrace obscurity. And number 12, nurture a heart of contentment. Contentment for what? Contentment for how God has made you. You want to nurture humility, be thankful every day for how He's made you and the level of influence you're blessed to have, if any, remembering that your best day of gifted service never accomplishes anything apart from the Holy Spirit's purpose and power. Abiding in Christ is how we produce fruit that remains, John 15. 
He gets the credit. It's his nutrients. He is the vine. We're the branch. The branch highlights the vine and the, the nutrients that flow from the vine. You don't create beautiful fruit and flowers without being attached to a root that is rich in all that brings about that production. And so the root is highlighted. 1 Corinthians 3, what then is Apollos, what then is Paul's servants through whom you believed? The Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, God caused the growth. That's how we're to live. I love Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do your work with all your might as for the Lord rather than for men. Not for eye service as merely pleasing men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's whom we serve. It's like the reformers would say, live in the face of God, quorum deo, to live in the face of God, to labor for Christ with all your might when no one notices as, when, as much as when everyone notices. To live in the face of God is to live one's entire life under the authority of God to the glory of God. No attempt to compartmentalize, no sense of self-significance, no morbid self-loathing, no morbid self-pity. Whatever God wants, God can have. Whatever He chooses to do is right and good. And if He gives me whatever He gives me, I'm to use it for Him. And if people notice it, uh, I am to always highlight Him. If people uh, ignore it and neglect it, I'm always to thank Him. If people never see it, I'm to rejoice in the obscurity of it because it it saves me from attempting to steal his glory. One author said, to live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we're doing and wherever we're doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. There's no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze. That's how you nurture Humility through a heart of contentment. I, I, I thank God for how He's made me and whatever level of influence He's blessed me to have, I remember that, that even the best day is attributed to Him and, and the worst day is my fault. I, I get in God's way and the fact that He would give me anything to use and that I could be used in any of it is Grace upon grace, why would he be so generous? Look at how I taint it. And even after I have squandered his wisdom before, James chapter 1 verse 5 says, if you come to God and ask him in faith for more wisdom, he's generous and he'll give it again and without reproaching you for the way you handled wisdom before, the poor way you squandered it before. He is so magnanimous and generous. Beloved, if you're going to nurture humility, that's how it is nurtured. You submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ and you learn why the cross was necessary. It's because our sin held Him there. You open yourself up to the correcting work of the Holy Spirit as He brings conviction. When you fail, you run to God for mercy. When other people fail, fail you, you help them by pardoning them lavishly and compassionately and move into their life as a, a grace and a help. 
You flee selfish ambition. You forsake jealousy and envy. You confess that what you have is undeserved and you rejoice when someone else is exalted and you think so as to have sound judgment about yourself. You never inflate your self-assessment. You learn to embrace obscurity and you nurture and cultivate a heart of contentment. This is how we see pride crushed in our life. How are we doing? Where does this list live in your home? It's on the front of the refrigerator when we started it. Now it's going to the side where you can't see it. Behind the cabinet, covered up with grandchildren drawings. Made it to your dashboard, but now it's in the little pocket in the door because you you want to see how fast you're going, of course. Maybe you memorized some of the list, but stopped memorizing it because it just got too difficult. Look, we can't do any of this list without the grace of Christ, amen? So, if anything, we've been crushed in our pride by each principle, but the overall overwhelming nature of all the principles crushes our pride because this is just 12 pride crushers. The Scriptures are full of ways that we can nurture humility. Jesus said, he who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. May the Lord give us grace to do that, and may we pray for one another and help one another do just that. Bow with me. Lord, thank you.